This is a download from the University of Virginia and the Engaging the Mind lecture series. This is the 400th anniversary of the settling of the Jamestown colony, and Virginia is celebrating with a series of events. But how has Jamestown been remembered in the past? In this talk from March 29, 2007, UVA anthropologist Jeffrey Hantman examines how this year's celebration will be different in light of new data and ideas about how Jamestown survived. Well, every 50 years since 1807, the anniversary of the settlement of Jamestown has been remembered, commemorated, and celebrated. This year, 2007, continues that long tradition with the fifth such event. The Jamestown anniversaries have been a cultural, ritual practice for Virginians, and in that ritual practice, Virginians have sought to sanctify that site as a sacred place, a place of a birth, the birth of English-speaking America, and the beginnings of a new world for all those affected by the Jamestown colony. If it was a birth, it was a difficult birth, as Jamestown is also sanctified as a place marked by violence, tragedy, and death for so many. In making Jamestown a sacred place and carrying out these regular rituals every 50 years, Virginians have used the anniversary as an opportunity to restate and reteach several basic credos about America's complex and conflicted colonial history and the meeting of three cultures, Native American, European, and African, who first came together in and around this one place, once called Paspahe in Algonquin, and renamed the James Fort in 1607. As an anthropologist, I use the term ritual with a particular meaning. Ritual practices in everyday life and in sanctified places invoke and teach a set of themes that are held to be sacred, important if not crucial to a culture, and which must be passed on to the next generation. I use this term ritual and the canons or, pr or principles which rituals cement Only after reflecting back on the anniversary events surrounding Jamestown over the past century and more, and the 2007 events that have happened and will culminate this May. A long list of those themes could be drawn up, but I want to stress here only three and get on with the specifics of my talk. Those three themes are first, Jamestown was the first permanent English colony in America. As America became an English speaking nation, Jamestown is then the birthplace of modern America. Simple enough, except very few outside of Virginia know or care to acknowledge this. The Massachusetts based Plymouth Colony, remembered and ritualized every year with the national Thanksgiving holiday, is in the popular imagination the birthplace of America, much to Virginians in the South's frustration. From 1907 to the welcoming homepage of this year's Jamestown 2007 website, we see this lesson restated. Jamestown was first, 13 years before Plymouth. They become fighting words. Second, the Jamestown colony, which was ruled by martial law for a decade after the arrival of Lord de Loire, held a meeting of a representative body of the colonists in 1619. Thus, democracy in America was born here. True, except Boston and Philadelphia seem to have cornered that position again in the public imagination, and more soberly and less subjectively, for Native Americans and the Africans who would later come to Jamestown as indentured servants and then as slaves, democracy did not extend to these people for centuries. 
The legacy of that is still felt in America today. The anniversaries have noted that as well, even back to 1907. And this year, of course, as well. Third and last, the anniversary ritual invokes a story of hardship, tragedy, and survival for the colonists from which a new nation barely emerged. Even as the near destruction of the local Powhatan Indians uh, resulted from the appearance of the colony, and that story has always demanded and received a hearing, the rituals have for a century, these ritual ceremonies of, of anniversary, these rituals have attributed the survival of the once thought bumbling English gentleman to the activities of one Native American, even as the others were the enemy, one Native American always seemed to step forward. In 1857, in 1907, in 1957, that Native American was Pocahontas. In 2007, it's her father, Chief Powhatan. But there's always one. So we'll return to that theme. In 1988, I was serving on the Virginia Historic Landmarks Commission, and we often met here in Winchester, and I fell in love with Winchester during those years, and I'm, it's one of the reasons I'm thrilled to be back. Anyway, that's a tangent, excuse me. My students complain I had to go on too many tangents. In 1988, I was on the Virginia Historic Landmarks Commission, listening once a month to nominations for historic status designations for buildings, hearing arguments for tax credits for building preservation, and listening to grammatical corrections to texts of proposed historic highway markers. While listening, doing that important work of the Commonwealth, I was brought, and I was proud to do it, uh, I was brought to attention by the appearance before me of testimony from the wor world-famous Williamsburg-based archaeologist Ivor Noel Hume. He oversaw all of the archaeological work leading to the reconstruction of Colonial Williamsburg, and much more, Martin's Hundred, places you may have visited. Ivor Noel Hume, on that day in 1988, told the commission in 1988 that it was time to begin planning for Jamestown 2007. I was fairly new in Virginia at that time, I knew nothing of the earlier Jamestown anniversary celebrations, and I thought that Noel was, well, just a little early. But I was wrong. He wasn't. Pri he was there anniversary. Played a big role in it. Private, state, and federal agencies and organizations began by 1992 to take the 2007 anniversary seriously. In 1993, the National Park Service began an archaeological survey of all of Jamestown Island, getting beyond the fort itself and recognizing and identifying colonial and Native American sites, much more numerous, which extended across the whole island, over 12,000 years of history, and also recording a dramatically new environmental history of the region, which included data that showed that the most serious drought conditions known in Virginia for approximately 600 years span from 1000 AD to 1600 or 1607, the most serious drought conditions occurred around 1585 and 1607. So that work began, that was early on by the Park Service. Uh, somewhat more uh, famously, in 1994, William Kelso, an esteemed historical archaeologist, 
and the Association for the Preservation of Virginia Antiquities began the archaeological research that would dramatically rediscover and reinterpret the original James Fort and surrounding town. Private, state, and federal agencies controlling Jamestown Island and the nearby Jamestown Festival, now Jamestown Settlement Park, began planning major revisions in their museums, which we can now visit, and they're spectacular. Thinking about Jamestown for reasons I will dis discuss tonight, I began 15 years of archaeological research at this time in the Virginia Piedmont and Mountains on Monacan Indian history for its own importance and for its importance to understanding the Jamestown story. Some of all of that is what I will review in images and words tonight. The last 18 months have seen a great deal of commemorative events, thoughtful panel discussions, reconsideration of school curricula, consideration of the impact of Jamestown on Native American and African American history, the 400-year legacy. <clears throat> the planning has, has decentralized the anniversary moment to make this a statewide event. Planning has engaged the Virginia Council on Indians and other Indian tribal leaders. The planning has for 18 months called this respectfully a commemoration, a ritual remembering, a sanctifying though the final weekend events can hardly be called anything but a celebration, highlighted by the return appearance of Queen Elizabeth II to the Jamestown anniversary. But if we create rituals, we can also change them. That's what people do, keeping some of the core, but changing slowly and steadily aspects of the larger story we want remembered. What changes on the edges is important, it may someday become the core story to be told. As the title on the screen suggests, as we look again closely at the sacred monument that is Jamestown, there are some new words, some new stories, some new themes adjusting and surrounding the core three I outlined earlier that we are beginning to tell in 2007. I'm going to focus on just one. It's a long story, but just one. That is the importance of understanding the larger Indian world of the, not just the Virginia and larger greater Chesapeake world, but the Indian world of the American continent in order to understand what happened at Jamestown. To do this, I will first review what we know of the colony, what we know of the Powhatan Indians who controlled the territory into which the Powhatans came, I'm sorry, into which the English came, and then the story of the Monacan Indians, whose territory comes very close, I think, to where we're sitting tonight, but not quite. We're neighbors, you're the Northwest neighbors to the Monacans. But the Monacan people in the past controlled a vast area of Central and Western Virginia along the James and Rappahannock into the mountains and across. There are some lingering puzzles to the Jamestown story that new data and new perspectives can shed light on, and I hope to do that tonight. In 1607, 104 Englishmen showed up on the shores of the, on the banks of the James River in three ships, oops, and established a fort, a place called Jamestown, James Fort and then Jamestown. Now this, I, will, I want to give due credit, the work of uh, William Kelso and the 
APVA, the Association for the Preservation of Virginia Antiquities, has been nothing short of incredible in rediscovering the archaeological footprint of the, the actual fort itself, reconstructing the lives of the colonists and the death of the, many of the colonists. And this is an image I borrow from Bill Kelso. And what we see here is on the act, this is an actual aerial photograph of James, Jamestown Island, and here with an artist's reconstruction of the outline of the fort, some of the interior homes, and then out in this direction, James Fort became Jamestown. And some archaeologists refer to it as really an emergent ur urban place in, in Virginia. These are the ruins of the State House. In 1619, this is where we say, every 50 years or more, uh, this is where we say uh, democracy began in America. The first meeting of a general assembly, a representative council, elected, uh, speaking for the colony. Uh, it was found by the National Park Service in the 1950s and extensively excavated. Kelso and his team have expanded that excavation, and this is a large part of what we uh, honor today in sanctifying this place and the birth of America and the beginnings, the birth of democracy in America. Jamestown is also about exploration. On the left is Captain John Smith. On the right is the map he drew of Virginia based on his observations during the years 1607 to 1610. One of the significant things about this map is that it was published. In 1612, Oxford University Press, in one of their first uh, publications that was not of a, a religious nature, publications about history and geography, uh, in 1612, Oxford University Press published John Smith's Map of Virginia and a description of its people. Now, this is the map, and a large part of what we have known for 400 years uh, about Indian people comes from Smith's observations made in his travels. Where were those travels? The National Geographic, I'm, I'm, I won't take credit for any of, any of the finer slides will, are surely borrowed, and the, some, of the some of the black and white ones are my own artwork. This is from National Geographic uh, last year, maybe two years ago. The Chesapeake, Jamestown is here. This is the territory that John Smith visited. He stayed within the coastal plain. Um, it is significant that Smith makes, is completely honest about this. You see and up and down the rivers, up and down the James, up and down the Rappahannock, well up into Maryland, uh, onto the eastern shore. His knowledge was firsthand, and he was led by an Indian guide, a Powhatan Indian guide who took him to these places where he was welcome, for the most part. I mean, there were back and forth times for John Smith, always a controversial figure. But to return to the map itself, which is so influential in our understanding of events, Jamestown is buried in here. You couldn't see it from where you're sitting, but it's approximately here on the James. I, I have to point out very quickly that for some reason the convention in 1612 at Oxford University Press was that north is going this way. The Chesapeake is running north-south. West, here's Winchester, okay? More or less. Don't hold me to that. 
North Carolina is this way, and the Atlantic is out that way. I don't know why. If any of you do, please let that be the first question. The first question could be, you know, explaining that to me. I've I've begged for help on that. Um, I think it has to do with this was the path in. This was this was how they approached America. Any case, John Smith exploration knowledge of Indian people. There is a tremendous density of ink here. The word Powhatan is written, P-O-W-H-A-T-A-N. That is the Powhatan territory. It runs from the Chesapeake to the fall line, essentially from Washington, D.C. on the Potomac to Fredericksburg on the Rappahannock to Richmond on the, on the James. Everything east of that is Powhatan territory. It is dark in that area because John Smith recorded over 200 Powhatan Indian villages, 200 names of towns with as many, some are small with 50 to 100 people, some as many as 1,000 people. There were 14,000 people living in this territory. John Smith took a census. We learn a lot from him. I will challenge many of the things he says, but some of the things he reports we wouldn't have otherwise known. And he learns this from his base in Jamestown. Now, out here, it's not very busy. Here's the, it says Monacan. Later, you'll see a blow-up of that. This is Monacan territory, and it's not very dark. There's only 12 villages identified in Monacan territory, 12 towns that are named. Here's the point. John Smith is very honest. Up in the corner in his guide to the map, there's an iron cross, what looks like an iron cross. And that cross appears across this section of the map. And Smith says, to this point, I have been directly. I have witnessed directly. Beyond that is by relation only. John Smith never got out of the coastal plain. He never got out of the tidewater. His Powhatan guide named Moscow who's a fascinating character with apparently a French father and a Powhatan mother and a beard and a fighter and a whole interesting character, but that's a subject for another night. Moscow would not venture into Monacan country. And Smith is completely honest about it. So we don't know much about it. There's not much out here, not because it's a sparsely occupied area, but because no Englishman into 1650, ventured west along the James or the Rappahannock or the Potomac. This map gives you that cultural geography without all the 17th century noise. The Powhatan territory, again, surrounding the tidewater. This is Monacan territory. They had two divisions, Manahoac and Monacan, but it's all collectively Monacan. They speak a Siouan language, a different language than the Algonquin-speaking Powhatan. They're neighbors. They sometimes describe themselves at war, but they clearly have archaeological evidence tells me they've been trading with one another and probably intermarrying for centuries. They had connection with one another. The Massawomeks, and this does get close to the Winchester area, and the Susquehannocks are Iroquoian-speaking people a different language, and well-connected to the interior, as were the Monacans and the Manahoacs, who really straddled the mountains. They're on both sides of the mountains. And 
To the south are another Iroquoian-speaking group, the Mangoaks and the Chowans that are, um, again, surround the Palatans. And I'll come back to this point, and this map will reappear. But the Palatans are quite boxed in. Some images I suspect most of you have seen many times. Um, I'll be quick, but just to give you some idea of life in the Powhatan village in 1607. These are the famous drawings, color, uh, watercolors of, of John White, the naturalist who uh, Sir Walter Raleigh and Queen Elizabeth sent to the Roanoke colony in what is now North Carolina, the Outer Banks of North Carolina, then was considered Virginia. Um, so this is not specifically a Powhatan village, but it is an Algonquian village. Um, we doubt that any Algonquian village ever actually looked like this. This really looks like a nice little burg north of London, circa 1607. But the architecture is about right. But no villages had these. But here's, you know, uh, you know Fifth Avenue, and here goes Broadway. <laughs> this is a European making nice of, of, a, of a rather different style of uh, living that the Palatans had. And here's a, a different village, Palisaded, which is interesting. Palisades may have been for defense. They may have been for other reasons. Circular in structure. Uh, but you, when you visit Jamestown and the reconstructed village, this, these are the models for those villages that you see. Um, you see they're rather modest. Uh, and that's interesting, but there's more to be said about Powhatan culture. Their, their towns were on a relative scale, kind of small, but they add up to 14,000 people, the Powhatan world. Um, this picture begins to give you the story that leads to the interesting puzzle and mystery, I think, that surrounds Jamestown. There's Chief Powhatan. That's Pocahontas' father. For some people, that's his main claim to fame, but that wasn't his claim to fame. Um, his real name was Wahun Sanaka. He was an Algonquin petty chief. Uh, we understand uh, from his own recollection and John Smith's writing that around 1570, he, by virtue of his lineage and his status, he inherited six chief, petty chiefdoms that he ruled over. So he was a chief in charge of six tribal groups, the Pamunkey, the Rappahannock, the Mattapanai, I'm not sure, you know, I'm not, I can't specifically name them for you right now, but there were six names that you might recognize as familiar Indian names. 1517. By 1607, whoop, by 1607, Powhatan, Wakunsanaka, known by the English, to the English as Chief Powhatan, had taken control through marriage through military means of conquest, through trade, in various ways, he took control of somewhere between 31 and 33 other native tribal groups, other chiefdoms. He became what we call the paramount chief, and 30 to 33 uh, other groups paid tribute to him, literal tribute. They paid tribute in, the way, in turkeys, and they paid tribute in deerskins, and they paid tribute in corn. It was said that he took 80% of the surplus of every household. 80% not of what was produced, but of the surplus. He had warriors who fought for him, mercenaries that were paid with copper, pieces of copper with tremendous significance. 
This is one of the most remarkable artifacts from Virginia, colonial Virginia. Uh, we think, it can't absolutely be proven, but we think it's uh, a cape that Powhatan wore. It's known as Powhatan's mantle. This is, it's all embroidered shell. Uh, it exists, as I said, in the Ash, still in the Ashmolean Museum in, at Oxford. This is the central chief, two totem animals on each side, and there are, some are missing 31 shell circles surrounding him. That's Powhatan and his world. He, he had, with the authority of priests behind him and, and beside him, he ruled over the territory from the Potomac to the James, from the fall line to the Chesapeake, with enormous power. And yet, I say somewhat, uh, I want to qualify that, it was tenuous. After all, he built up this world in less than 30 years. What was that power based on? Well, one thing we know is that, and here's another John White drawing, but it shows us a picture of a chief. This is a chiefly werewant. Werewant is Algonquin word for chief. And you'll notice he's hardly adorned with very much, not even uh, some tattooing. Uh, and there, but what's significant is the copper breastplate that he wears around him. Chiefs in the Algonquin world could wear that much copper. And copper played a very significant role in establishing uh, the chiefs as the elites. They, they identified themselves. They symboled themselves that way. They created allies if they traded copper. And so we see that there. And that gives us some hint of possibly a significant piece of the pre-Jamestown uh, story. Here again, here's Powhatan surrounded by these other groups. What are these other groups doing? Um, before I go into that, having talked about Powhatan surrounded, and yet Powhatan so strong, I want to just raise two puzzles. The first one takes two seconds. The two puzzles are the, about the cultures I've talked about. Why did the English come to Jamestown? I mean, we could say in unison, we all know the answer to that. The English came to Jamestown because they were in competition with Spain and France and Holland and other European nation states, in competition for control of the Atlantic trade, in competition in search for new commodities that could be extracted from the new world, sent back to Europe, new products, um, their neighbors played a role in their actions. The English came to Jamestown looking for a path to Asia, and so did the rest of the European states. And the Chesapeake Bay uh, drew everybody's interest. The Spanish knew of it. They called it the Bahia de Santa Maria. Everybody thought this is the path in. And so it's not much of a puzzle, but it makes us think, the English were thinking, had their neighbors on the European continent, and they were in competition, and so it's not much of a puzzle, I think, as to why uh, they came to Virginia. The second puzzle is, why did Powhatan let them stay there? Why did the paramount chief, with all that power and authority, ruling a nation 14,000 strong, 2,000 at least of whom were 
potentially warriors. John Smith recorded warriors in each village. Why did he do that? And that becomes a puzzle because, especially if we take a historical and archaeological perspective, when all I have to do is tell you these two things, which you may know already. In 1570, the Spanish beat the English to Virginia. They were already well established down in South Carolina and Georgia, Florida, throughout Latin America. Coming up to the Chesapeake was a no-brainer. But they began by sending up a Jesuit mission, a religious mission. That was the Spanish way, not an economic colony, but a Spanish mission. And the response of the Virginia Algonquins, this occurred in 1570 on the York River, uh, was to say no. And the missionaries were murdered. The missionaries were killed. The mission was destroyed. One boy, Alonso, was saved. The Palatinus didn't kill the child. He was 11 or 12. And he returned back to the, he was picked up by a supply, Spanish supply ship in 1571, and he was returned to the Spanish colonies to the south, and the story was told. The Virginia Algonquins said no. In 1585, famously, uh, Sir Walter Raleigh and Queen Elizabeth attempt the Roanoke colony, and it fails. It fails because the Indians don't help it. They start trading with the Roanoke colonists, and then they stop. And then the Roanoke colonists disappear, we say. The National Park Service says, they disappeared. I don't know what that means. They died. Um, you know, then we make it a mystical, something mysterious happened. Some alien force came down and they either blended in with, they died, or were killed. But the colony did not survive, and I know that it did not survive because the Indians, the Algonquin Indians, did not want it to. What changed in 1607? Suddenly, Jamestown is this incredible enigma. If you put it in historical context, and the cultural context of who they were in 1607, why did they let the colonists settle in Paspahe territory? Paspahe paid tribute to Powhatan, and Powhatan told Paspahe leaders, and I'm, I'm not quoting directly, I'm paraphrasing, <laughs> keep your mouth shut, we're going to let, he said to the Paspahe, let them stay. We're gonna, it's going to work out. I think we have to look to the interior to understand. And I'll try to move quickly um, to my point. For me, the interior is this region. This is the Smith map blown up and enhanced, so you can see the detail that does exist. The village of Montesucupanaw on the Rivanna. This is Charlottesville, 1607. I get a particular kick out of that. And I'm directing excavations there right now. Well, not right now. <laughs> this is Monahassanaw on the James, and I directed excavations there in the this first place I went back in the 90s when we all started thinking about Jamestown. And there are some other places. But here's the edge of Powhatan. In fact, this is where Powhatan lived. This is the symbol of a king's house. Smith says that's a king's house. And look what we have up here at Monsukupanaw, a king's house. Monahassanaw, a king's house. Who are these Monacans? Well, John Smith 
asked his, his friend Moscow, who are these Monacans? And Moscow said, oh, you don't want to know. They are bad. These people are barbarous people. This is Smith writes this down. They don't even know how to plant, which is essentially saying they're uncivilized. They wander about. There's just a few of them out there. Sort of like, they're the barbarians at the edge of civilization. That's what Moscow said, because Moscow didn't want John Smith going into the Piedmont Mountains, where the Virginia Company was telling Christopher Newport to go, because that's where the commodities were. Everybody knew what was going on, but the English couldn't go without a guide. Anyway, I'm going to talk quickly, show you some images from my excavations at these places. The Rivanna, this is basically Charlottesville, and that's the James, a little bit west of Scottsville, Virginia. Um, now my artwork. <laughs> <laughs> National Geographic has to come along and enhance this for me. Um, Anyway, these are the excavations at Monahassanaw. We renamed it the Woodside. It's a little easier to pronounce. That's the family that owned the property. Anyway, circular homes. They look exactly like what John White drew. And my point, very simply, is the villages look... We can only see them archaeologically. We don't have paintings of Monacan villages. But archaeologically, it's very clear they look like the villages of the Powhatan. The excavations, University of Virginia students working on a hot summer day in Charlottesville. Um, what's the date of this place? I mean, is it contemporary with Jamestown, or once the English showed up, did, did all the Indians in the interior run away? And if, if you read the documents, it almost seems that way. Who lived in Winchester? What native people lived in Winchester in 1607? Well, here's, here are the arrowheads or projectile points that we found at Mana Sukapanaw. And these are the arrow points at Jamestown. And there are many more from Jamestown I'll show you later, but they're identical. So the stone tools tell us we're in the same time period. This is a very meaningful kind of pottery to archaeologists. It's called Potomac Creek. It's got this banding and decoration here. It's very eroded in the Rivanna. But at Jamestown, the preservation is much better. And that's, they got the same pottery there. Are these people talking to each other or what? You know, they're in contact. They, they design the same pottery. They make arrowheads the same way. You can kill a deer with a sharp stick. You know, when people choose to make the same kind of stone tool and the same kind of pottery, it has something to do with social interaction, which sometimes includes war and sometimes includes marriage and sometimes includes sharing ideas about technology. Um, ironically, uh, this enormous collection of artifacts comes from Monahassanaw. It was picked up by collectors, private collectors, in the early part of the 20th century. And a famous archaeologist, J.C. Pinky Harrington, he was the first National Park Service archaeologist at Jamestown. He purchased this collection, ironically, in western, central and western Virginia, and it, brought it to Jamestown because he, they were so busy digging colonial sites, they didn't have any American Indian artifacts. And they, to, in, the, in the mind of the day, American Indian artifacts were generic, so this wonderful collection from Monahassanaw would do. So this wonderful collection of Monacan artifacts was preserved at Jamestown, ironically. 
Um, today, the National Park Service contacted me about it. They, and we've, the University of Virginia, my students and I have inventoried this whole collection and it's now been returned to the Monacan Indian tribe in Amherst County, Virginia, a central part of their museum. The defining uh, characteristic of the Monacan people and what defines their territory are a series of 13 burial mounds. This is a 1902 drawing of one, 1902 drawing by E.P. Valentine at the Valentine Museum, what became the Valentine Museum. Uh, Valentine excavated this mound. It's in Rockbridge County. These were impressive monuments on the landscape. More than that, they typically had up to 1,000, and in two cases, 2,000 individuals in them. So this sparsely settled area was anything but. And this barbarous people were very tied to the landscape and their ancestors in 13 burial mounds that cover this part of the state. And I, I was very careful <laughs> not to, uh, I don't want to, I'm trying to figure out who lived here in 1607, but uh, this is confidently what I call Monacan territory. I'm trying to wrap up uh, and then get on to the quick anniversary slides. Um, that red circle surrounds Monacan territory. It's defined by the presence of the 13 enormous burial mounds, which were monuments in their day. It also surrounds the location of the native copper mines that are dotted all along the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. Copper outcrops is found in veins in, in a raw form in the Blue Ridge, in the place that the Algonquin Indians called the Kirank Mountains. And when John Smith couldn't go into the mountains, the Indian guide wouldn't take him, Smith said, well, where do you get that red stone? And that's the way it was translated. Where do you get that red stone? And his, his, the person he was with was a petty chief, not Moscow, but somebody else, a petty chief wearing copper, whispered, I think it's significant that he whispered, he's talking about something sacred. He said, we get this from the mountains, Kirank. So we have this one bit of evidence that the copper that the Powhatan Indians got, in part, if not more, came from the Blue Ridge Mountains, the area that the Monacan Mounds and towns surround. So, I remind you with this map again, for all that I have to say about the complexity and the power of the Powhatan people, and I could go on, um, they are on the periphery of the continent, and the geography matters. They are in, unquestionably, one of the most, the richest biotic zones in all of North America. If it's shellfish that you want, that's where you want to be. But as far as copper, soapstone or steatite, obsidian, galena, mica, I'm listing for you all of the items that moved in a regular fashion amongst the elites, chiefs, of the Indian nations from the Mississippi all the way to the coast. And Powhatan had access to that, but only through his neighbors to the west. 
the Monacans being one for sure. They say that, but also the Susquehannocks who were t and the Massawomacks who were tied into the Great Lakes where, you know, arguably uh, a richer copper source can be found. Now remember the Roanoke colony. It failed. It's a mystery. But in fact, a lot of information came back to England from the Roanoke colonists. Thomas Harriet wrote up a lot about Native Americans. And what he had to say in one place was, if we return, if the English return to the Chesapeake, to the Algonquin world, the next time, bring copper. Not just kettles, but in the specific shapes. Their chiefs like it four inches this way and two inches this way. I mean specific blueprints. They like it circles. They like cut in triangles. And if you have that to trade, they will welcome you. And the Virginia Company and John Smith and Christopher Newport were well aware of that. At least that's what we've read. And that's what we, I hypothesized that Chief Powhatan allowed the English to stay because they brought him a better, a more distant, a more exotic, a richer, if you will, supply of copper. And that was the hypothesis. Maybe that's why uh, Powhatan allowed Jamestown to survive. The Monacans were friends sometimes and enemies others. And if he was to hold on to his 30 to 33 tribes, he needed a better and steadier source. A hypothesis. Return to Jamestown. Bill Kelso's extraordinary excavations with the Association for the Preservation of Virginia Antiquities. In 1995, in virtually the second season that Bill was digging, he called me up, having read things I'd written about this copper hypothesis, and he says, you've got to come over. We're excavating a trash pit, and I can date this trash pit to exactly 1610. And 1610 was the year that the colony was almost abandoned, and Lord Delaware stopped the ships that were trying to get away and said, go back to the colony, we'll stay. But now we do things differently. We don't trade with the Indians. We're not going to make friends with the Indians. We're going to take charge of this place on our own. John Smith is gone. We're doing things differently. The significance of that, Kelso finds these artifacts. Copper cut to specific shapes. The waste objects. Copper cut to specific shapes. The snips used to cut the copper copper and triangles with holes drilled in them to be worn as pendants. These were the objects that were to be traded, that had been traded between 1607 and 1610 that made it possible for the English to stay. But when Lord Delaware came in 1610 and said, no more trade, these objects went to the bottom of the trash pit. So this is both evidence, this is incredible evidence of the moment that the, the, the attitude of the colony towards the natives changed and the goods that had been prepared based on what was learned at the Roanoke colony, this is why I think Powhatan allowed the English to stay in 1607. And that's how the native, that's how America 
was born as an English colony. A hypothesis, but I think with this archaeological evidence in place, fairly compelling. Um, very quickly, because I'm, I'm close to 50 minutes now, um, and I really do want you to tell me why the maps face the way they do. Uh, the celebrations have been extraordinary. Um, we like to think we're in a global world for the first time. Globalization structures everything we do. We're situating everything in global terms. Well, in 1907, I'll skip over the, the early 1807, 1857 were rather, rather modest, but they were called jubilees and they were significant and sacred anniversaries. 1907 was an extraordinary uh, anniversary celebration, bigger than this year's, to tell you the truth. Um, one author refers to it as imperialism on parade. Uh, we had just participated in the Spanish-American War. Teddy Roosevelt was going full tilt. And it was all about America's demonstrations. The Jamestown anniversary was about the birth of democracy and American power abroad. Ships, the anniversary took place not at the Jamestown site, but in Norfolk. And ships came in and out all the time demonstrating American military, naval power in particular. And that structured most of what happened in 1907. But 1907 also honored, you can hardly see this, but this is Pocahontas keeping another uh, Powhatan from, murder, from killing Captain John Smith. A mythical tale, most of us are sure. But this was remembered. This was the Pocahontas saves the colony, 1907. The Pamunkey Indians, the descendants of Pocahontas, or Chief Powhatan, Chief Powhatan was a Pamunkey, they participated in the 1907 um, anniversary celebration. And here they are carrying out a play, and here's Pocahontas, and that's Captain John Smith. He's about to be killed, and Pocahontas is pleading to her father, Chief Powhatan, don't kill John Smith. So. We still talk about these two figures today, not many other named Powhatans, but those two have just always been in our ritual ceremonies. In 1957, we have, it was the um, 350th anniversary, the Jamestown Festival Park opened, and I love this image, Queen Elizabeth II um, requesting a lesson in how to grind Indian corn and um, with Prince Philip. Uh, so we'll, she's coming back, and we'll see whether she you know, can still do that, uh, or wants to do, you know, or maybe there's something else she can do. Well, we can talk amongst ourselves about that. But anyway, um, you know, it's interesting how we honor the birth of democracy by inviting uh, European royalty to come celebrate <laughs> with us. And, and that makes it a great day. But it, it truly is exciting that she's coming here and the Kentucky Derby in the same week. Um, I think only two more images. This is a very powerful image from 1957. It kind of, this is the way it's always been in the Living History Museums. The European, everything I've tried to say to you tonight is that the power was in the hands of the Indians. The control was in the hands of the Indians for those first few years. But when you visit these museums, you don't, you haven't been seeing that. And I picked this picture from the 57 
celebration because I, I, nothing could say this more. A single man in a small canoe dwarfed by the Godspeed and the Discovery and the Susan Constant. It just it seems like inevitable that this technology would overwhelm the Indians, but it wasn't that. It was really the trade relations. Today, new words on an old monument. I'll bring it to a close by saying this is now, uh, we no longer really put Pocahontas at the center of the story, but this is Chief Powhatan in a copper-colored statue with an enormous piece of copper around him at the Jamestown Settlement Museum, which just opened and is really quite amazing and, and wonderful. Um, the message, may, this message of, of Indian, uh, the Indian role, the Indian authority, and ultimately it, it failed, but in that moment, in the 1607 moment that we celebrate at the anniversary in these rituals, I think the message may still be on the periphery of the dominant themes that recur. Uh, the message I've talked about tonight is still on the periphery. Um, we've returned this anniversary weekend of May 11th to the 13th. You'll hear it over and over again. We were first, not Plymouth. Democracy was born here. But new words are now on the monument. And these new words tell a story that includes people far removed from the James Ford itself, like the Monacans, understanding, helping us understand perhaps native motivations in the events that unfolded in 1607 and beyond. Perhaps by 2057, those words will have moved to the center of the ritual commemoration, a more inclusive ritual, as we are clearly moving in that direction even now. I think it's a richer story, and one which perhaps answers some questions that have long been a puzzle. I thank you very much. We have, do we have time for, did I? cut all through the question period? I'm okay. So, you know, what's the deal? I don't know. Are there any questions? Yes. Was copper have this role in history in Hawaiian culture? Is copper noted in other cultures as being that valuable? Many cultures. Uh, certainly North American Indian, which is where my expertise is. Uh, the Northwest Coast, the same thing's going on. The Russians are coming in and uh, there, is, there are copper mines there, but the Russians, you know, who colonized the northwest coast from the other direction. Well, gold trumped copper. You know, the Spanish found gold. There were, there, no, they weren't. Uh, for instance, there's gold in Buckingham County in Virginia. Um, nobody that I know of was looking for it in 1607. Um, the Indians were not, I mean, that gold is, you know, flex and different cop there is something about copper it's redness it comes from within the earth there, there's something about it from Michigan to the Northwest Coast all across North America now into Latin America gold becomes the the item but the anthropologists talk about prestige exchange that's there's a free movement of corn and 
you know, deer and meat and that type of thing. But prestige exchange links were the driving force were behind political relations. And so when the English arrived, I don't think Powhatan said, oh my God, people from Mars are here. Not at all. When I hear that, I get, you know, my goodness, he'd already encountered two other European groups and, and he was used to others, language speakers all the time. What he found in the English was a trade partner. Um, some of my colleagues in history always want to say, hey, come on, it was about the guns. Powhatan wanted access to guns where they wanted allies to fight the Monacans. Actually, Powhatan speaks for himself on that point in the, in the documents. He says, I, he, he turns down every offer uh, to trade for, for uh, military alliance. He'll take a gun every now and then. He took a greyhound dog, uh, not a bus, uh, a four-poster bed. I mean, he had some interesting taste. <laughs> or, or that's what they brought, you know. I, I, could, I picture him saying, thank you, a four-poster bed. My, my home is uh, now up near Richmond. Do you think you could have some of your, some of your guys bring it up there? And, and they did. And they did. Yeah. Yes. Very little, I, I think at the time I was trying to describe these prestige goods that move, like mica, galena, uh, various stones that are in these prestige elite exchange spheres. Uh, obsidian is definitely one in the Midwest. Um, in Ohio and Illinois and Indiana, maybe some of you know the word Hopewell, Hopewell culture, Hopewell sites. Those Hopewell sites import the elite bring in obsidian from what's now Yellowstone National Park. That's the, that's the nature of what's going on on this continent that the Monacans and the Massawomeks were connected into and the, the Powhatans had to move through their neighbors. And they did, but it was tenuous. But no, um, I, there are two, that's a very good question. There are, I can think of two obsidian pieces that have been found in Virginia archaeologically, and uh, frankly, I'm a little suspect of both. How does that undercut all archaeology? So you can't trust anything, you know, these archaeologists. Yeah? I was just wondering, what, if, if we, they decide to get along and trade and whatnot, what happened in 1609? When Delaware came? Let me see if, I, if I'll re try to rephrase it because not everyone could hear. Um, what happened in 1610? 1609 is the starving time. Yeah, sorry. My question what happened then? They decided to get along and trade, but then they all wanted to leave after that winter. Okay. I, I have one answer. To, I, my answer to that is um, Smith left. He has a self-inflicted gun wound. I'd love to do some forensics on that, you know? <laughs> this was not a loved man. You know, he was a commoner. Everybody, the other leaders of the colony were, were status, had you know, prior status in England. So Smith was always rubbing him the wrong way. You know, he was imprisoned on the ship on the way over. So I'm, don't quote, don't quote me on this. Uh, <laughs> 
you know, Smith gets sent, has to go home with this unfortunate gunpowder explosion that tears up his leg. Um, the significance of, that, significance of that is great because it's John Smith, controversial in all ways, but it's Smith who like, looks at the, over the landscape, reads Thomas Harriet, and says, the only way we're going to survive is if we trade with the Indians. They're growing corn. They'll grow corn for us. Um, we have to be uh, you know, allied with them. If they want to make us the 34th petty chieftain, which is what the attempted, you know this famous story where they almost killed Smith. Most, of, most people in anthropology and history think that's an initiation rite, that, that Powhatan was trying to make, loved Smith and wanted to make him tributary. So what happened? 1609, 1610 is the starving time, but I don't think that's the issue. I think the man whose idea was survive, survival is rooted in our being able to have friendly relations with the Indians is replaced by the, the authorities of the Virginia Company who are fed up with the actions. You know, they may be surviving, but they're not turning a profit. And so Delaware comes, you know, mystic. This, this truly seems mystical. You know, just as the boats are trying to go home, he comes in and you know, says, turn around, fellas, we're going to try this again. But his rule was no trade. And that's the trash pit that Kels, William Kelso found is as dramatic an archaeological sign of a moment that I've ever seen in my life. It's incredible. And it documents the, how carefully they prepared that particular trade good. So does that, that's my answer to your question. Um, why did they, you know, that's giving an awful lot of, uh, of, thank you for that question because everything I, in my answer gives all the uh, decision making to the English. And maybe Powhatan's brother, Opie Kankanu, who had a temper. <laughs> you know, Opie Kankanu led several armed rebellions again. When he took over, he took over with a fury. He inherited the, the chiefdom. Um, maybe Opie Kankanu or the priests, um, I, I'm going to think about that. Maybe there was something happening. In, yeah, wow, I got it. Do you have time for this? You know, it's the drought. We were learning about this drought based on the work the National Park Service did, and uh, maybe the stress on Palatine was too great and he couldn't trade. Maybe his people needed that corn, and he was telling the English, I'm not trading with you anymore. De Loire comes in and says, we're not going to tell, let, the, let them let them tell us what to do, and it turns into uh, we're taking charge. Thank you. I hope, does any of that make sense? Should I, should I go with that? <laughs> Let me make a few notes and I'll be back. <laughs> yes? Sorry. Okay. Useful of the uh, Indians using the copper as decoration. Yeah. Is there any evidence that they used it for any other purpose? Um, very little. I want, I want to, um, some sites, uh, a few artifacts. You notice some of those pendants look tri are triangular, not look, they are triangular. Some of my colleagues say these could have been arrow points, but I don't think so. And I've never seen any reference. John Smith talks in detail about stone arrow points. The ones I showed you, he describes. We find, I mean, Kelso finds them in the fort. They're found, you know, tucked into the 
posts, you know, the holes where the posts of the fort, they hit the fort and they dropped down into those posts and they buried there for 400 years. Um, they're, they're all made of stone. So the copper, given its, you know, it's, when the Powhatans would canoe, would row by a temple, there are these temples along the James, they would put copper into the river, pay tribute to the ancestors and the gods, one and the same. This is a sacred object, so I don't think it had a functional use. But uh, to be to answer you more fully, I, I have there are some archaeologists who think sometimes they were used as arrow points. Okay. <laughs> so can I? Yes. Along the same, it's my understanding, along with the same discussion, that um, when John Smith came with businessmen. They were actually the London Company, and they were looking to make a lot of actually looking for gold. It was mm -hmm. supposed to be a big adventure. Um, the two things here, when you say the Spaniards, they were in the south, and they had destroyed the Aztecs and the Incas. All that the Europeans had heard uh, was that there's gold in this new world. Mm -hmm. And so my, my concept is that the French went into Central America mm -hmm. and, and um, the central part along the Mississippi and yes. down from the north, and they just traded with the Indians for furs. Yeah. And so with the fact that it was my understanding that actually the Jamestown settlement was that they had missed the gold. They had missed that they had come into that area. Uh, well, I think, see again, the Roanoke colony, the, the failure of the Roanoke colony, we, we need to pay, and the scholars working on this for the last 10 years have paid attention to how much was learned at Roanoke and how much came back. And I think they knew there was no gold. They, they asked. <laughs> that was like the first question. You're right, the Virginia Company was here. This was a private commercial venture. This was no, not, no longer, uh, although it was chartered by the, the, the queen or the king, King James, uh, they were looking for commodities, pitch and tar, and, uh, you know, copper was one. I mean, they always had uh, somebody who could, you know, work the crucible to see what, you know, whether, what was the quality. At, um, at the Roanoke colony, is a tidbit of history, but I think it's fascinating, they, a, man, a, a, a man from um, Prussia named Joachim Gauntz, Jacob Gauntz, was looking for gold, and he's the one who reports there is no gold. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing is that he's a Jewish man, um, and Jews were expelled from England. They weren't allowed to be in England, but when they went to America, they were so focused on the commodities that they asked around the continent, who's the best? And it was Gonza. And they, they said, well, he's okay. And he actually hung around the Queen Elizabeth's court for quite some time. That's how we know about it. And Ivor Noel Hume at Roanoke found the first, everything's a first, right? So the first uh, laboratory in North America, a European laboratory in North America, the one thing that, that Noel found at Roanoke was that was Gauntz's uh, testing area, all the tools he used for testing. The, the answer to the question is they knew there was no gold in this part. But they sure, 
The Virginia company, every supply ship brought angry letters directed to Christopher Newport saying, get out of the Tidewater. And they, I mean, it's really telling to me that they did not. I mean, that tells me something about, that was one of the things that made me say, there must be something about the Monacans and the Massawomics and the Mangoaks, and they all have that same you know, similarity in names. There must be something about them and keeping the Powhatans, uh, you know, within their territory. Well, that, that you had in that, just that slide prior to this one, mm -hmm. is that the first mountain ridge? Is that the Blue Ridge? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. It's a, yes. Since they were coastal Indians, I can't believe they didn't trade all up and down the North American coast. It's a good, yeah. Religion or culture or voting that Everybody hear the question? It's a good question. Since the since the Powhatan were coastal Indians, why wasn't why weren't they then connected to other coastal Indians? Um, and my answer would be, for what? You know. Uh, if you go up all the way up to the Abenaki, all the way, you know, in modern day Washington D.C., you know, Maryland D.C., Delaware, New York, Long Island, Connecticut, you know, I'm thinking of all the, all these are Indian names, of course, you know, Pominock was the name. These are all Algonquian places, and they had the same resources that the Powhatans had, which is abundant quahogs you know, abundant clams and shellfish, uh, rich fertile soil to grow corn in, and an absence of mineral resources. So I have, the, the Powhatans are actually pretty recent migrants. They've, they're Algonquin people who've come down the Algonquin coast um, and move into this area, we think around 700 AD, which is a long time ago. But why didn't they trade? Um, I suspect they did. Um, they intermarried and that type of thing. But the, 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 the trade item on the coast, of course, is wampum, is shell. And everybody on the coast had that. So what all the coastal people wanted what was in the interior, and they got it. I mean, there are Hopewell artifacts and burials on the Delmarva Peninsula. I mean, occasional connections, and that's like 2,000, that's over 2,000 years ago. So does that answer your question? That the boat never seemed to develop. You know, right on the, the, the boat seemed to be dug out canoes, nothing with sails on it or... Uh, yeah, they didn't, they didn't have the, they're just, they're trading connections which are the interior, and uh, they, there was redundancy along the coast. But the, but, you know, the Monacans and the Massawomics and others wanted the wampum. So that was what went. They wanted the shell, because you can't get that kind of shell. Uh, and, and one of the tribes on the eastern shore, one of Powhatan's tribal groups, is known as the wampum-producing group. So that is what's going out, soapstone, copper, coming in. Yeah. What do you look for That's a great question, um, and a big one. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's a great question. Uh, 
what do I look, what, what do archaeologists look for, I have to say, what do I look for, because uh, I can't speak for everybody else, to select a site? Hmm. Um, well, since the early 1990s, I have looked for places that I could connect to this story of the Jamestown colony, which is to say, I look for places that were lived in before, during, and after the 17th century. Um, and, the, and not a lot. Um, if, if there's a 20th century house on top of it, that's not going to help me very much. So a place that is preserved, that has a 17th century context preserved, and, and possibly 18th century as well, because one of the things, and talk about tonight, but one of the things we're, with the Virginia Indian Council, we work very hard to do is erase the myth of the disappearing Indians. After, you know, after Lord Delaware, you just don't, except for the military action, the wars, the Opie Can Canoe led uh, rebellions against um, the colony, you don't hear much about Indians. They disappear, and certainly in Winchester and Charlottesville and all throughout Western Virginia, you just don't hear. So archaeologically, I like to find sites that I can tie to that period from maybe 1400 to 1800. Um, so that's, it wasn't always that way, but I, uh, this question back when Noel Hume said, we got to start thinking about Jamestown 2007. I said, yeah. And then I got really sucked into it, and I'm still, I, I'm not letting, I can't, I'm still talking about it. Um, a second, I'll answer very briefly, the toughest thing in Virginia, as a, I used to work out in the Pueblo area of the Southwest, in Arizona and New Mexico. You know, there's no soil development out there. You know, people build homes out of a stone and adobe, and you can walk right, they built them in 1400, you can walk into them today. And here they've built houses out of saplings and thatch, and it's very hard to find them. Um, so, and the rivers flood and soil gets deposited and, and, or soil gets carried away. So a very practical um, methodological answer to your question is paramount. I need a place that's preserved, that I can say this is 17th century, it has not been disturbed, these are not earlier or later artifacts that got jumbled in, and that's what I look for. But I, I use the Smith map. I wanted Monahasano, I wanted Monasukapanal. Wanted to find those places, so I, I critique some of what Smith wrote, but I use what I can. Some, any other? Sorry. Oh, yeah. The burial mounds. How do they compare with the burial mounds in England or the other burial mounds in other parts of the world? The question. The question is about the Monacan burial mounds, uh, and we're as we sit here, we're not too far from the most northwest one. And uh, rock in uh, in um, Warren County, um, and how do they compare to mounds in England around Stonehenge and elsewhere in North America? Elsewhere in the world. Wow, um, that's a big question. Yeah, can I? I'll answer you two ways and. Uh, I could do a whole semester on that. Um, and I do ask that question. They're absolutely unique uh, in the sense that they are, 
They are, there are no other mounds in North America, just stay in North America at the moment, I can't say about Europe off the top of my head, but there are no other mounds that have so many people in them, 2,000 people in the one close to, uh, in Orange County, Virginia, on the Rapidan River. Thomas Jefferson famously excavated one in 1784 near Charlottesville, and he estimated that there were over 1,000 people in that mound. And most people have said, you know, this guy was creative and this is crazy. But when I had the chance to dig the one in Orange, and it had 2,000, I think Jefferson was underestimated. So in that sense, but then there's not a lot of, um, the Monicans were not collectors of burial furniture, as they say, burial goods. They're not typically filled with pots and wealth items. There's a, a sense in which the mounds, they have king's houses, they have a hierarchy, they have power elites, but the mounds equalize everybody. They're, they're not extended burials. They're, they're what are called secondary burials. 2,000 people put in a mound as what Jefferson called an utmost, in utmost confusion. He was wrong, actually. It was just the way he dug. But they're secondary burials, which means the bodies were laid out somewhere and then the bones were gathered up about every seven years and placed into the mound in, in, in a very careful fashion. So in that sense, they're like no other mounds in the world. And that's why I'm confident to draw that red circle and say, this is the Monacan world, because you don't find them around. Um, having said that, the mound concept of building up to the sky, reach, the ancestors and reaching up to the heavens, I think is part of a larger phenomenon that includes Aztec pyramids and the barrows, as they were called, in England around Stonehenge. And it, just, if I may, because you know, my contract requires me to talk about Thomas Jefferson whenever it's at all possible. <laughs> uh, so Jefferson, Jefferson really was the first archaeologist in North America. He excavated a mound in 1784. And I've written quite a bit on this. So why did he do that? What inspired him? Who taught him? Was he make this thing up? And, and what I discovered was that, of course, he was a student at William and Mary, and his professors were Scottish. And the Scottish Enlightenment was doing archaeology for a long time. <coughs> Professor William Small at William and Mary, I think, taught Jefferson. And Jefferson says, there are barrows in my neighborhood. He uses the English word barrow, so he saw the connection. I think when he opened them up, they were different. Yeah. These are di they're small and there's some, you know, mounds come in many shapes and sizes. The fact that these are unique to the Virginia Piedmont mountains captures my attention. No. The fact that there are 13, the question is, is there significance to the 13? And I think, uh, I don't think there's significance to that except that the southern, the, the 13th, if you will, there are 12 that really are tight in a geographic circle. The 13th is down by Leesville, uh, Virginia, not, Le not Leesburg, but Leesville, further south, and, and actually it reflects the migration of the people off the James. I think very much in response to Jamestown colonists starting to come up. But they didn't disappear. They moved. And they returned. Jeffrey, last thought on Jefferson. I know it's getting late. 
Jefferson, in Notes on the State of Virginia, has, everyone should see this, at uh, some point read this, uh, describes a return visit of Indian people to the mound that he excavated in 1784. He watched, he and Carr, William Carr, watched a party of Indians make their way through the woods, he says, as if knowing exactly where they had to go. And they stayed about the mound and, and conducted ceremonies of utmost sorrow. My God, I've committed it to memory. Um, but it's a powerful passage. He watched, so this was the mid-18th century, and the Indians are still returning to the, the place of the ancestors. This was the, that's how strong, A, that's, if you ever think the Indians disappeared, just read that passage. There went a party right past Monticello, or Shadwell, on their way to the mound in Charlottesville. And it speaks to the commitment to the territory, to the place. They weren't going to leave, and they were going to continue to take care of that mound as best they could. Okay, we have time for one more. And who has that question? Yes. Is there any evidence that the Monarchs would have communicated or traded in any way with the people of Is there The question, is there any evidence that the Monarchs traded with the people of Cahokia. Cahokia is the, um, the most physically uh, impressive Indian mound in all of North America. <clears throat> it's um, just east of St. Louis. If you drive by on the interstate, you could see it. It's actually many mounds. It's a, it's a city of mounds. This, the main one is called Monk's Mound. Um, I'm telling you all about this, and the answer is going to be no. But monk, uh, just you should know what's going on in the continent. Uh, Monk's Mound is the second largest man-made uh, construction anywhere in the Americas, second only to the Pyramid of the Sun at Teotihuacan in Mexico. But it's all earthen. And as our culture doesn't have a lot of respect for earthen construction. We like stone, and we like wood, and we like, you know, brick. In Charlottesville, we really like brick. <laughs> <laughs> but earthen construction is just like a pile of dirt. But when you stand on the top of Cahokia and realize the urban place that laid below it, it wasn't a burial mound, it was a, called a platform mound and the chief, the highest-ranking chief, lived on top of it. Is there evidence of direct contact between the Monacans and Cahokia? I don't think so, but, I mean, I haven't seen it in the artifacts, because uh, I know what Cahokia artifacts look like, I haven't seen them. But I think they all knew one another. I mean, I think the Monacans' neighbors traded with their neighbors, and then they got into this... The Cahokians were part of what's called the Mississippian world. And the Monacans weren't exactly a part of that. Uh, but they were neighbors to it, and they knew about it. Uh, but I don't see the... Yeah, about 1400 is right. And Cahokia fell, kind of rise and fall, then a place called Moundville in Alabama rises up, then a place in South Carolina, Cofetichecki, 
becomes the next center. That's one that actually DeSoto visited. It was like the last great mound center. And DeSoto brings smallpox to it, and it's, by the time the next Spanish explorer came through, it was decimated. But they still build mounds. In, uh, the Cherokee people build mounds. They built them in southwest Virginia, and they still build them today in Oklahoma. It's a, it's a, great, it's a long-standing ritual tradition. I've kept you a very long time. You've been a great audience. I thank you.